we're going to be talking about two things that I really care deeply about. So the first question is, how can we use artificial intelligence, things like machine learning, to integrate into clinical practice and actually improve the value of patient care? And the second question is something that I personally experienced a year ago, which is a burnout. You know, as a health professional, how can we perhaps use technologies like AI and machine learning to help the workforce, especially during something like a pandemic, to prevent burnout? Welcome to day 86 of my 90-day challenge. This is the third to the last episode of this 90-day challenge. We'll be carrying on afterwards with weekly episodes, but essentially I'm sharing my personal journey into the world of health innovation and entrepreneurship but I'm also highlighting the stories. I mean, look back at the episodes. We've got so many guests like the one we have today, but most of them actually come from non-health backgrounds and they've been through a personal experience of their own and it's inspired them to pivot into the health space and create solutions, some sort of service or product that helps tackle the problem that either they experienced or when they were caring for a loved one and they observed that. So do check those out. By the way, I'm Beirouz. I'm a public health doctor, preventive medicine physician, here in the UK. Uh, I shared a university, although we weren't there at the same time, with my guest today at Harvard School of Public Health or Harvard Medical School. And um, my mission really is to help you, the entrepreneur, to create a healthier, happier world through your startups, through your ventures. But it all starts at home with our own health and well-being. Look, if you are looking to launch the next health venture, whatever that may be, do check out the link in the description below because I've created some free resources that I really truly think you need them because it's the common things that I see many entrepreneurs when they approach me and ask me questions I just say look just take this prescription take a look and then we'll talk again so do check out it's like a prescription a checklist of things to think about when you're in entering the health space yeah. <laughs> health space we are live I'll edit that out later quick disclaimer uh, if we do speak about some health topics uh, obviously this is information only the both of us that we're speaking my guest and myself we are doctors but I'd like you to speak to your uh, licensed physician if you're concerned about your own health and well-being. I'm joined today by Dr. Effie Andriukopoulou. I hope I pronounced that night right. It's a Greek name. Yes. A excellent. Excellent. <laughs> yes. uh, I should be able to say that having lived in that part of the world in Cyprus for so many years. You know, she's a Harvard-trained board-certified cardiologist and she has a special interest in innovative healthcare services with a transition into something that's really meaningful, value-based care. She's assistant professor of medicine and radiology and is currently doing an executive MBA uh, at the University of Alabama in Birmingham or Birmingham. And uh, Birmingham. I've got a lot of gratitude for, for that university. When I was at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, uh, towards the end of my two-year fellowship, uh, I was called out to lead uh, an investigation into an accidental chemical spill in a town called Eight Mile. Not the Eight Mile in the song, but Eight Mile in Alabama. And students from the University of Alabama did drive down and helped volunteer to do a door-to-door -door survey. So really major thank you to them. Effie, oh, I forgot. You've got two great awards that I have to share. I'm proud to share these. And she didn't want me to say these, but I'm going to say them. In 2016, <laughs> she's a rising star in healthcare in Alabama and also American Heart Association Women in Cardiology Trainee Award for Excellence. Now you're blushing. So Effie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Beirut. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for inviting me and for having me today and for making the time to talk to me about two topics that I'm very passionate about, just like you mentioned. 
Oh, you're more than welcome. Look, I'm really curious though. You know, people ask me the same question, but I want to hear your story. You know, what led you to go from the traditional world of clinical practice to think about studying an MBA and getting into the world of business and, and AI? Yes. Um, so first of all, once I once I finished my cardiology training, I decided that I wanted to dive deeper into cardiovascular imaging. I did that for another two years, and then I it was time for me to get my first big girl job, and that's why I came back back to uh, UAB, to the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where I started uh, working as an assistant professor of medicine and radiology with an expertise in cardiovascular imaging. Um, but it wasn't long until I realized that there was something missing uh, that we don't really get from traditional medical training. And that was how do we, the, the, the very core question of how do how do we understand what motivates people and what makes people behave the way they do? And I, I did some, some research on my own to try to, under, to learn that. And I found out that economics is actually a field that studies what motivates people and what drives people's behaviors. And um, that's what, that was the initial flame, the initial spark that got me thinking about getting an MBA. Uh, and thankfully, my program here was very accommodating in, in allowing me to do it and making time for me to do the executive MBA here, uh, which is flexible. And that's how I started up doing. Little did I know that the MBA just in, even if it was just a year, um, it opened a whole new world to me um, with respect to healthcare, but also much broader than that. How does industry work? How do other businesses work outside, outside of hospitals? Because all I knew was academic hospitals, academic institutions, nothing else. I knew clinical care and research. The MBA opened up the world of, of business to me, but not with, not, not with like the accounting sense of business, but in terms of leadership, collaboration, teamwork, diversity, bringing law, all sorts of different disciplines together with a common vision and setting that vision and strategically coming up with a, with a steps that will get you from point A to point B, leveraging the best of, of your human capital, your technology, your equipment. Um, that's the, and that's why I'm really, uh, I, I, I've always said that this has been the best decision I made for, my, for myself as an adult, because in Greece, I entered med school when I was 17 and a half. So I technically wasn't an adult when I picked med school. I'm glad because I love it, but this was the first decision I made for myself academically as an adult. Uh, and I, I couldn't be happier. Nice, that's really nice to hear. Look, I wanna get into your uh, expertise and ask you those questions I, I, I introduced at the top of the um, show. So let's start with the first one. So artificial intelligence, machine learning, how can it actually improve clinical practice and improve value-based care? And I'd love for you, for 
to help with those entrepreneurs listening, watching, who are not familiar with the term value-based care as well, just to introduce that perhaps. Yeah, so um, value-based care is a very complex um, term and encompasses a lot of different uh, concepts, but in, simple, in a simple way of thinking, uh, value-based care means transitioning from a traditional fee-for-service and essentially pay or get paid for the service that you offer model to a model that integrates two main factors. Number one is quality of care. Um, was the care that was delivered good or bad? And that is determined in part by the outcome, it, meaning is it, did the patient live? Did the patient die? Is the patient feeling better compared to before? Is the patient feeling worse? Um, so that's number one aspect of value-based care. The second aspect of value-based care is the, the cost efficiency of it. Um, meaning we do, we, we will never as, as physicians or providers in general, we will never compromise on providing excellent quality of care, but we have to do that um, within reasonable cost constraints. Uh, we don't want, especially in the US, I know that in Europe, because I'm from Greece, haven't worked in Europe, but I, I know that the, because the, the financial, the healthcare financial system is different, um, the, the thought process behind physician behavior and provider behavior is different when it, with respect to ordering tests, a patient in general. But in the US, we are literally being paid for what we do. And that can either go very well or very bad. Uh, meaning we can either say, we can either do very defensive medicine and do a whole lot of stuff when it's not really needed, just in case. Uh, but that is incentivizing us because we are getting paid more. Um, or it can go well for that subset of physicians who do have that cost efficiency mentality. The majority of physicians, though, don't have that cost efficiency mentality, and um, I think it comes from a good place, a good intent. I don't, I don't believe physicians ever think, "Oh, I'm going to order this test because I know I'm going to get paid more." Um, but physicians want to be defensive, and that leads to more healthcare costs here in the U.S. Um, Value-based care says, listen, this, I'm going to give a very practical example, a very simple example. Value-based care says, listen, you get an X amount of money for that patient with this condition, and I want you to manage them as best you can, get the best outcome with that loaded amount that you get. Um, and that's, that then shifts the incentive from okay, like how can I, how can I order more tests? Cause I will get paid more. It shifts the mindset into, okay, I know I have a fixed amount of money and I know that I wanna provide the best care to my patient. How, what's the best way, what's the most efficient way for me to use this money? So that is value-based, very practical and simple 
way of thinking about it. So Effie, before you come to talk about how AI and machine learning could help with that, I just want to add a hundred percent. I mean, you are the expert when it comes to value-based care. And I just want to add to that, just if you want to think of it as irrespective of how much you have, let's say you've got a fixed amount, your focus goes, tip by the way, look, we're both physicians. We know exactly what we're talking about here when it comes to our best, we have the patient's health in our mind. And for me as a public health doctor, it's the population too. However, we're so busy, we may not have the capacity to necessarily reflect and review of our practice and think, yeah. was what I, what I, you know, the treatment or the test that I was doing, did it actually move the needle literally and actually help this patient? So this helps you focus, refocus on choosing the right test, choosing the right question to ask, choosing the right intervention or preventive uh, strategy that actually helps this patient not only get better outcomes, as you said, in terms of disease outcomes, mortality, death, let's say, but also self-reported, uh, re you know, mentions of, do they yes. feel better? That, so you said that. Anyway, back to you. Um, yeah, and so, so that is value-based care in a nutshell. Uh, so then the question is, okay, how, how can we leverage uh, AI, machine learning to, um, to, to use it through our journey into value-based care and into transforming the way we deliver care. Um, which should not, value-based care is one aspect of transforming the way we, we practice care and the way we deliver care. So the, the, the main question is how can we use AI and machine learning to transform the way we practice? Um, the way every doctor or every provider rather practices. Um, there's lots of different ways, and this really depends on the specialty that someone is in, uh, their, their, uh, their interests, their clinical interests or research interests. Um, if they're more interested in, in uh, doing interventions or procedures versus being a medical doctor who sees patients in an office, um, I can share my experience and then we can, we can talk more about that and elaborate more. But I'll give you an example of how, what we are doing um, at UAB. Uh, since I'm, an, I'm a cardiac imager, I'm, I'm working in lots of different imaging labs at, at UAB. Uh, one of them is the echocardiography lab that we have and is, it's extremely busy. Uh, also keep in mind that UAB is the, the academic institution in, in the state, and we also get patients from nearby states as well. So we do, I want to say, uh, somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 uh, echocardiograms. I'll call them echoes. Uh, we do 1,000 to 1,500 echoes a month. Um, so what we have been doing is we have collaborated, and that's where MBA and collaboration teamwork. Uh, we collaborated with, um, uh, with a company outside of UAB, a third-party company. And we've, uh, we've built algorithms, AI algorithms that use uh, both natural language processing and, um, uh, uh, and uh, numerical uh, data. Uh, extracting numerical data to real-time screen every single one of the echo studies that we do and identify certain disease states 
that are known to be potentially life-threatening for patients and cannot and should not be missed. And they need timely um, for instance, these are uh, valvular conditions, um, aneurysms of the aorta, uh, and we've already implemented those uh, for a little over a year now. And now we're expanding the same concept to other cardiac disease states like um, patients with advanced heart failure who need to be referred to specialists. Um, and patients who need to be referred to specialists for placements of cardiac devices like defibrillators uh, who, can, who can literally save people's lives. Um, so that's, that's one way that we, we in our imaging lab are leveraging AI and machine learning. Other ways, that's, that's a little bit niche if you would like. Um, a big way uh, that is coming out uh, is to, to make our lives easier as providers, um, and that kind of ties with burnout. Um, so to make our lives easier uh, is using AI and machine learning to, to reduce documentation and non-clinical work. Doctors um, are, are used to the most of their potential and skill set when they're doctoring. Um, same with nurses, nurse practitioners, all of, all of clinicians. Um, but when we have to take time out of our doctoring to do administrative work and go through documentations, paperworks, um, type, typing notes, um, uh, reaching out to insurance companies. That's not when we are doing what we're meant to do, which is help people. And there, there are softwares now um, that not only transcribe, uh, they're, they're um, ambient sensing softwares for natural language processing, that not only transcribe conversations between patients and physicians, but they transcribe and they, they transform them into clinically meaningful documents that are automatically being made part of uh, electronic health records, which essentially eliminates the need for, for a physician, a clinician to have to type a note. Um, that's what Nuance does, the, uh, the, which was bought by Microsoft. That's what Nuance does. And I know that um, VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University, um, is working a lot with Nuance. Um, it's still at its early stages. Uh, it's not something that, and we can talk more about that concept in general, uh, especially for entrepreneurs wanting to enter the health space. Um, one, one big advice is do not get discouraged because healthcare is notoriously slow to and resistant to change. And entrepreneurs are intrinsically disruptive natures uh, and it can get very frustrating uh, for an entrepreneur when they know that their product works and has potential. It can be very frustrating having to go through the hurdle uh, of committee after committee, 
uh, it's extremely slow and painful, but it does pay off. I'm, I'm seeing that firsthand with the, the third party company that we're working with. Um, it, it took several months to take it from the first stage of using them to detect valvular disease and aortic aneurysms to expanding it now to a, a much, much bigger population of patients with heart failure. Um, so, so yeah, for, uh, for the entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening to us and are thinking of entering healthcare, uh, the, the big take-home point is that there is a lot of, of need, there's a lot of room for innovation, uh, there's a lot of room for new ideas. The downside is that adoption is slow uh, and it takes a lot of patience, but it, it will happen. Um, it, just takes, it just takes patience. Just a couple of follow-ups. I mean, I really appreciate you covering um, the range of topics I wanted to address with you and you've got tremendous experience and I'm glad you're actually living and breathing a relationship with a private company that's helping you um, avoid really the, the never, never, what do you call them? Um, never ever events or never events. You know, you should not miss those diagnoses at all. Um, I've got a question. So how either for this specific scenario, more generally, um, how would you recommend a private company, a startup, an entrepreneur, uh, they should approach someone like you in the health sector so that they can validate their idea, explore it, and maybe pilot it? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. So um, I think it's, uh, it can be done for, it, it, there's two sides to this, uh, to forming this relationship. One is the side of the company, of the entrepreneur. The other is the side of the, the uh, provider, the hospital, the physician. Uh, from the entrepreneur side, I would say, uh, I mean, they would have to do their homework. Um, they would have to know where their product fits. Obviously, the needs of a big academic institution like UAB, with like over a thousand bed capacity, are going to be different from a private practice, from a smaller private practice. And the needs of, a, of an urban uh, hospital are going to be different from a rural hospital. The needs of a teaching hospital are going to be different from the needs of a non-teaching hospital. Uh, so number one is really learn about your potential um, market segment and your client. Who, who are you, um, who is your product meant to be used by? That's number one. Number two, once you've figured that one out and, and you know who your customer is, then, um, then it comes down to communicating and reaching out to that potential uh, client, to that potential customer. And there's lots of ways of doing that. Um, I mean, if there's, if there's one thing that COVID uh, did is it really broke down barriers, like physical barriers, location. Um, we have LinkedIn, we have, um, which I use a lot, uh, and I think is, is a great tool. Uh, there's also more like in Instagram or Facebook, uh, sure, but LinkedIn is a big one. Another way that um, uh, entrepreneurs and companies can reach out is through medical societies. 
Um, for instance, in cardiology, uh, in the US, we have the American Heart Association. Um, and I know of a startup company who's working with the American Heart Association. It's in the vascular health area. And I'm, I'm working with them as, uh, as a consultant as well. Um, they're, they're based here in Birmingham. Another one is the American College of Cardiology. Uh, I know that in Europe, there's a European Society of Cardiology, and then there's also uh, country-based societies. Uh, and then for, for different, and those exist for every medical specialty. A big one in the US is the American Medical Association. So if, if you're lost and you don't know who the appropriate medical society is, you can always reach out to the American Medical Association and they can point you to the right direction. Um, third is uh, networking both in person and virtually uh, through conferences. Uh, once you have identified your, your space and the specialty that you would like to start with, um, you, could, you could attend a conference and network either virtually or in person with physicians and other industry uh, representatives. Um, and also that would help figure out what else is going on in that space and see what, what other people do. Um, that, would be, that would be a way. And then, and, and then if, you know that, if you know exactly who your customers should be, uh, you, can, you can always directly reach out to them. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with, uh, again, as long as you do your homework and maybe you check out your LinkedIn profile and see what kind of things they're interested in uh, so you can start up the conversation. Um, I would say that's the way to do it. I know that the company that, that's working with our echocardiography lab, they, um, they connected with our medical director uh, that way. Um, and then there's also the side of the, of the providers themselves who may be looking for, some, for, for a solution and may reach out to a company. That I don't think that happens very frequently, uh, but that so, sometimes that happens as well. Mm. I wanna um, ask you kind of one last question, but also any final words that you've, you've got as well. So you, you're not prepared for this, so hear me out. Um, okay. I'd love to know, I mean, you're obviously in the world of health economics and, and studying business and, you, you know, you've got a ton of experience both in Europe and the US. If you, you don't have to say what the solution is, but if you were going to launch a startup of your own in the future, hopefully you will at some point uh, or work with someone who does, what specific problem would you like to solve in the health space? Well, um, yeah, I've thought about that a lot. And um, the two things that I have played with is number one, access to care and, um, and promoting um, health equity. And the second is, the second is streamlining, um, streamlining everyday mundane tasks that would reduce our work burden, the provider uh, work burden, workload, and lower our burnout and make our lives easier. Um, and, and allow us to focus more on connecting with patients and, um, and 
and caring for patients as opposed uh, I don't like the word managing patients. I don't like the word management. Uh, I, I like the word caring more because that's what we should be doing when we're with a patient. Um, we should be dedicating 150% of our attention to our patient, uh, not thinking about, oh my gosh, I have to finish this encounter and then head out and get on the phone with an insurance company, or I have to finish this encounter, get out, and then answer 11 messages in my inbox that came over the past hour that essentially asked me a different version of the same thing over and over again. Um, I mean, I have created auto texts that I can copy paste because that's how frequently certain questions are. Um, so those are the two, so those are the two things. Number one would be how can we get high quality care to everyone, no matter where they are. And I think that's something that COVID really triggered in me, that question, uh, like how, like why does, why does a patient have to travel from the other side of the state to UAB to get their echocardiogram done? Is there a way where they, they wouldn't have to do that? It happens in other industries. I mean, I think, I don't know if I told you in the past, but I use that example very frequently. I drive past a CVS every day and I still order, order stuff that I get from CVS. I still order them from Amazon mm. because they come to me and I don't have to make that stop, even though I drive past it every day. Um, and I know that I'm going to get the same thing at a, at, at a similar price, but it's much more convenient because I don't have to leave my car and I get to go home sooner. Um, so how can we... How can we take this and translate it into care, which would mean not compromising to the quality of care that we provide, um, but making it more convenient for patients, for, for people, and more flexible to see a high quality provider at, at their, on their own terms. That's one. And the other one is how can we, how can we reduce clinician burnout by, by streamlining and standardizing certain aspects of our, of our work? And that could be administrative work, taking over administrative burden. Um, but it could also have to do with clinical care. There's, there are certain things that I don't need to, to dedicate as much time in, in, in doing. There are certain conditions that don't require the same amount of, of time and energy and attention. So how can we, how, maybe, maybe we can stream those and, and use AI to stream and again, give us, give us more time to maybe focus on more complex cases and complex, complex conditions that definitely need our like attention. Uh, those those are two questions that I I think would be great um, to to answer and tackle. Love it. Um, you've got I, I can see it. I, I'm going to see you in five years. I don't know however many years, and you're going to be the the head of something really great, either as an entrepreneur or as an entrepreneur or heading up a, a medical system. So um, I'm looking forward to that day and, and celebrating with you. Um, it's 
exciting. There's so many things. I mean, listen, there's so many, there's, there, we can do anything we want to. If we put our minds to it and if we're humble and we work together and we each bring the best of what we do and we come from a place of good intent, we, I, I'm, I'm an optimist. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature. So I, I don't think there's anything that we can't do. I'm going to say one last thing and then hand it back to you for any final words that you might have uh, generally. Um, so if you're an entrepreneur, don't be scared. Honestly, I know many entrepreneurs who've pivoted into the health space with some sense of naivety and not knowing how complicated things are. And that's such a good thing. You either you, you actually enter the system because if you had known how crazy it was, you probably wouldn't. And that's my fear of the, the content that I'm sharing is that Sometimes we might make it so scary that you'll say, oh, forget this, there's easier ways to, to do something that I want to do. Don't stop doing that. Never forget also that uh, when you do want to help address things in the health space, you don't always have to go and uh, just close your ears, uh, Effie. You don't always have to go to the healthcare uh, system. You can also address health through the wider determinants, the social determinants, the environmental, the lifestyle, nutritional, which are actually 90% of what determines health. 10% is access to, to care, which is important yes. when things go wrong. Um, yes. So I'm going to shut up now, but Effie, do you want to have any no, final it, words? <laughs> yes, the other, yes, yeah, you're, absolute, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, we spend most of our lives not being at the hospital or at the doctor's office. Yes. Uh, so that's another another big one is like your your uh, exactly what you're saying and kind of goes along with health equity, um, which would be first and foremost understanding social determinants of health and that's another discussion that we can have maybe in the future. Mm. But um, yes, the other thing that I would say for anyone who's interested in entering healthcare is. Um, it's not just, like you said, healthcare is not just hospitals and doctors. Healthcare is insurance companies. Um, healthcare is uh, other nonprofit organizations that deal with, with patients and conditions. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure there's a huge need for, for, for innovating operations uh, on their side as well. Um, so there's, yeah. It's not, it's not just hospitals, for sure. Appreciate you. Uh, Effie, look, I'm wishing you the very best of luck. And for you watching, thank listening, you. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I forgot to mention uh, Ramon Lamas introduced us and he was She's one awesome. of my first, he is awesome. Uh, if you're looking for a consultant in the uh, Durham rally area or indeed anywhere, actually, he's got some excellent insights into wider determinants of health. He's a public health yeah. entrepreneur, one of my first guests on this podcast. Um, so I, what I want to share really is what the guest I have also tomorrow, speaking of wider determinants of health, the guest tomorrow is going to be speaking about nature-based healthcare and how we can use interventions with environmental sustainability, maybe design hospitals better, healthcare facilities better, communities better. She's going to be joining me hopefully same time tomorrow live, so do join me there. And my very last day of this 90-day challenge is going to be something that 
I'm I'm looking forward to. Not only am I bringing back Ed Jaffa, who's been my coach throughout this time, and we've got some insights to share for, in terms of my personal transformation, but also uh, I'm going to be announcing and bringing on a guest who's won the special prize. I'm giving away someone who's getting access to uh, Startup Therapy, the course that walks you through all of these complex problems and helps you navigate the system. So uh, join me tomorrow. And thank you again, Effie, and it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Verus. Thanks. Take care. Learn more at The Entrepreneur's Doctor. www.entrepreneurs.doctor. Better health starts here.